0: I wonder if you agree with this statement by author Paul Tripp. He says, There's woven inside every one of us a desire for something more, a craving to be a part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than, our, than ourselves in our relatively mundane day-to-day existence. Tripp continues, That something that we desire... Is called glory. And humans are hardwired for glory. We see this in the imagination of children who dream of being kings and queens of the world. We see it in mountain climbers who hang from rocks in order to be swept up in the transcendence of nature, something that's bigger than themselves. We see it in sports fans. It's coming. Who find fulfillment in a life given to the success or for certain Florida teams, the defeat of their team. And so here's my question this morning. How are you seeking to live for a glory that is larger than yourself? What is it that you're pursuing? Do you feel pressure to do something extraordinary or radical in order to fulfill this hunger for glory that you have. If I could ask it another way, how is it that your life is going to count? And so to be clear, it's not wrong to hunger for glory. The author of Ecclesiastes reminds us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in our hearts. And so what that means is that this hard wiring that humans have for glory has been put there so that we would seek God's glory, that we would have the glory of the eternal God fill the longings of our hearts. And yet you know as well as I do how easy it is to turn the pursuit of glory in the right place into the wrong place how easy it is to either ignore God or try to use God to get glory for ourselves on our own terms or in our own ways. And when we do that, we're often left starving for for fulfillment. We take the gift of being created for God and his kingdom and turn it in on ourselves and make it about living for our own kingdoms. And so it's less about him or his and more about mine and mine. I wonder if your lack of contentment this morning is owing to this introverted pursuit for glory. That you're seeking it in all the wrong places. And so my glory-starved friends, there is good news this morning. Lasting and hopeful satisfaction is available in God himself. And our appetite for glory is satisfied when we live for God. And we give ourselves to a life of faithfulness. And it's not faithfulness in the extraordinary. No, when we give ourselves to a life of faithfulness in the ordinary mundane rhythms of this life. And so I just want to say it: it takes courage to face ordinary days and believe that your life is full of significance. It takes faith to believe that even a small life can be a meaningful life. And it takes, it takes faith and grace to know that if your life doesn't captivate the attention of the masses, that by faith you hold the attention of your Lord. When we are faithful in the ordinary, God graciously, graciously gives our lives extraordinary significance. And this morning, the commissioning of Covenant Hope Church is just a tangible reminder of such faithfulness. As covenant life has sought to be faithful in the ordinary and in the mundane, as a church family, God in great mercy has brought us to a place of extraordinary significance. And that's a reason to celebrate. And so I wanna pray, and then we're gonna take a stone and we're gonna skip it across the New Testament and enjoy the ride. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see and to behold beautiful things and ears to hear truth that would transform and change our lives. God, help us see that our lives can count not by being well-known in the eyes of the world, but by being faithful before you. That life matters. And a church that lives lives like that, it matters. And so overwhelm us with truth from your word that our seemingly ordinary rhythms of life in your hands can be used for extraordinary purposes. And so I pray that in order for us to behold this, that you would allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached. Do it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Acts chapter 13. And as you're going there, I just want to remind you, in 2016, Covenant Life Church ended up sending 27 members to plant the Heights Church in Seminole Heights. And we praise God for the ways in which he used that church plant in all of her five and a half years of existence. And this morning, we're celebrating another sending out from Covenant Life for the work of gospel Advance. In St. Petersburg, Florida, we believe, our conviction, we believe that that the most effective way to reach a community and a city is to see a biblically faithful, gospel-centered, Jesus-treasuring local church in that city and in the communities that make up that city. That consistent presence over the long haul, we feel like, brings about gospel renewal in the best way. We think the New Testament makes this clear. And so it's with expectant hearts this morning that we gather together to just remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness. The story of covenant life, the story of covenant hope, it's it's not a story of our our strategies. It's not a story of our effectiveness. It's a story of God's faithfulness. But not only do we want to remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness, we want to double down on our belief that we are desperately dependent upon his spirit to do the work that he's called us to do. Lord, save us from being a church in Tampa, a church in St. Pete, that thinks that just because we show up, that that's enough. No. We want to be desperately dependent for the Spirit to do a work that we can't do. And so when we think about this topic of church planting, what is church planting? What do we mean when we say church planting? We believe that church planting is the intentional process of sending out a few Christians who will faithfully preach the gospel so as to see non-Christians become Christians and unchurched Christians become uh, meaningfully a part of a local church. So that's the hope. So we talk about church planting. Essentially what we're doing is we're sending out people who are going to be faithful with the gospel. So, as to see the Lord work and call and bring in sheep that are not yet in his fold, but also to see Christians that are unhealthily disconnected from the local church to find community together. These Christians will reg- regularly gather together, they will observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they will preach the Bible faithfully and regularly, they will preach the gospel faithfully and regularly, and they will make more disciples. That's the work that we're praying the Spirit would bring about in St. Pete. That's the work that we're praying that the Spirit would bring about, continue to bring about in Covenant Life Church. A group of covenanted Christians who will walk two journeys from now till glory. One is this internal journey towards godliness and helping one another get there. And another is this external journey towards being faithful with the gospel in our evangelism, and in missions. And there's no command in Scripture. You're not going to find the verse that says, thou shalt plant churches. You're not even going to find details on on when in in a church's life should you plant a church. But I want to be clear, there is a strong impulse throughout the New Testament that churches that are healthy reproduce They send out, they multiply, they take the gospel to their their neighbors and to the nations. If you were to flip over, I I realize I told you to turn to Acts 13. You don't have to jump around with me. Matthew chapter 28. Let's just consider two examples. Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20. What do we read? The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain where, which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Just an encouragement to those of you who say, man, I just I wrestle with doubts. I, I don't think verse 17 is in there uh, by happenstance. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so based on my authority, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. After resurrecting and before ascending, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples, not merely to make converts, but to go and make disciples, disciples. People who would remain and who would continue to follow Jesus. And they are to do this as they're going, by baptizing, and by teaching to observe all that he had commanded. In many ways, if you were to read the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says to these disciples, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And perhaps we hear that and we think, okay, the Great Commission is this personal call on my life individually to go and to share the gospel. And while it is that, it's not only that. I mean, how the Great Commission has been set up. The descriptors, the participles that were given in order to, how is it that we go about seeing disciples made, baptizing, and teaching others to obey? The New Testament clearly puts that in the context of that's the job of the local church. The local church, when you hear it, the Great Commission, that isn't merely an individual commission, it's a corporate commission. The ordinance is given to the local church, teaching people to obey. The local church is God's primary instrument from which disciples are made. But then if you think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, speaking to his disciples who were asking, when is it that you're gonna restore this kingdom to your people? Jesus says, it's not for you to know that time. The father has fixed that time in his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This commissioning then would lead the Holy Spirit to come upon his people as Peter would preach the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. And we would see on that day 3,000 added to the number of God's people. The birth of the the church belonging to God was not this, this physical heritage, it was a spiritual heritage. The rest of the book of Acts is this description of how spirit-indwelled Christians then live. And so, friends, this morning, obedience to this Jesus-spoken commissioning, obedience to that in the regular mundane happenings of life is the recipe for joy-filled, extraordinary significance. And that can only be found when you stop living for lesser glories and begin to live for his alone. The end of all of these commission impulses in this New Testament sending impulse, the aim of God is that he would be treasured for who he really is among all peoples. The end isn't merely let's send out. No, the end is we're sending out because God's glory is to be actualized and to be realized, and to be experienced by people. The end is his glory. The end is that people would treasure Jesus more than anything else. And I just want to say a word up front. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. The majority of the sermon is going to be the result of what happens when you bow your knee in submission to Jesus. And i If we were to go through this sermon and you were to listen and you were to think, okay, I need to one day then be a part of a church plan. You would miss even that impulse, the motivation for why we send out. Sending out isn't the aim. The aim is that God would be rightly glorified among all peoples. And that begins with you. It begins with your heart. And so I invite you this morning to listen to what it is that I believe the New Testament says you are missing out on. And make today the day that you get in on that. You and I were created for God. We were created to be accountable to God. And yet we all turn this glory that's hardwired within us in order to to bring God glory, to be filled with His glory, to be most satisfied in Him. We all turn that onto ourselves. And when we do, we're unable to do the one thing we were created to do, and that's to bring Him glory. We rob Him of glory by wrongly assigning it to ourselves. And because God is a glorious and a gloriously holy God, he must judge everything that is in rebellion against him. And he will. And so then, what's that mean for a glory-hungry people who seek it in all the wrong places? It doesn't merely mean that your life isn't going to have the significance that it could. It means that you stand guilty before a holy God deserving of his eternal punishment for your sin against an eternal God. And an eternal punishment that he has found fit for those who rebel against him is to experience his holy hatred against sin for all of eternity in a literal place called hell. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that what's at stake is not merely, is my life going to count in 30 years? It's is my soul going to find its maker. Will I be able to stand before the one who I am created for and give him what's rightly his, or will will I be separated from him for all of eternity? The good news this morning is that you don't have to be separated from him for all of eternity. Because there was one whom the Father sent, To live the the perfectly righteous life. To live for the glory of the Father at every turn. And then who would come to the end of his life and he would absorb the wrath that you and I deserve for robbing God of his rightful glory. And then on the third day, he would raise from the dead in order to live forever. And the good news is that you can be a part of that living, a part of that number, if you will come to the end of your efforts. You will stop pursuing glory in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. My non-Christian friends, I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. Trust in Christ's work alone. And it would be the joy of any person in this room to just point you and to have a conversation with you about ensuring that you Don't waste your life and miss out on the greatest glory that you can know and that you were created hardwired to live for. Well, perhaps the clearest passage in the Word of God that can clarify our conviction about church planting and helps set parameters around our commitments For church planting is found in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And so this morning we will consider the example of faithfulness, we'll consider the approach of faithfulness, and we'll consider the fruit of faithfulness. The example of faithfulness, the approach of faithfulness, the fruit of faithfulness. And so we begin first with the example of faithfulness. Acts 13, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that you heard Kay read earlier. Now there were at Antioch, in the church, that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion, who had been brought up with, the, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And verse 4 then tells you where they sent them to. They sent them on this journey where they would just go and they would seek to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And as the gospel went forth, they would then faithfully gather Christians into local churches. We see them doing the exact thing that the Spirit, uh, that Christ had commissioned them to do in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. And so I think there's two. convictions here that inform our commitment to church planting. The example that we see in Acts 13 informs then our practice here at Covenant Life. The first example is this. Church planting flows from worship. Church planting flows from worship. This church that was gathered in Antioch was worshiping God. They were praying. They were fasting. They were and it was in the midst of their worship that the Spirit moved. It was as if the, the, the sails of this boat, this local church's boat, were raised. And they were waiting for the Spirit to blow through. And so I just want to say this morning, Covenant Life Church and even Covenant Hope Church. Covenant Life, if we desire to continue to be a multiplying church, Covenant Hope, if you desire to be a church planting church, We must first be churches whose hearts are captivated by Jesus. Church planting is the result of worship. It's not merely a strategy or an approach to ministry. Worship fuels our mission. Worship fuels church planting a people who are enthralled with the glory of God will give their lives to the spread of the good news of Christ. I just think that's a great then question. Are you giving your life to the spread of the good news of Christ? If not, what's the connection then to how enthralled you are about the glory of the God who's deserving of it all? We multiply together together as we prize and treasure Jesus more than anything else. And this is what we've covenanted together to protect among one another. And and you just think, this church would go on to be a a church-planting beachhead. It would be the, the home base of frontier missions as the New Testament understands it. And you think, man, what about this church There had to be extraordinary things this church was doing. Like, what's the secret sauce that the church at Antioch had? And I'm, I'm, I'm baffled that in a day where it is not uncommon to have conferences and different emails and products in order to get your church to be effective in church planting. The church in Antioch had none of that. Uh, the Spirit is using ordinary means of grace, like teaching God's word, and coming together to worship the one true living God. And fasting and praying. Don't underestimate the significance of gathering together to see just how the Spirit might use that one song or that one prayer or that one sermon or that one lesson in Covenant Life Kids or that one class in Covenant Life Institute, how the Spirit might be pleased to use that for future works of gospel-spreading ministry. And This is what we're teaching and modeling for our children and the next generation that will come after us. I mean, this is what makes us unique from everyone else in the world. Our church-planning efforts are tied, directly tied to the depth and the vibrancy of our worship. And and I want to be clear. What I'm not saying is that churches that haven't planted a church are somehow not vibrant in their worship. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that church planting is more than a ministry strategy. It really is the, the result, the overflow of a church that's heart is set on corporately worshiping. So not only do we see church planting flowing from worship in Acts chapter 13... The second thing we see is that churches plant churches. You heard it in Jim's prayer. We wholeheartedly agree. Churches plant churches. Paul and Barnabas were serving this church before they were sent out from the church at Antioch. And so we believe two things. We believe that that the local church is the training ground for missionary service. It's the training ground for pastoral leadership. It's the training ground for church planting. If you were just to flip over to Acts chapter 11, we'll do this in a moment, and and just realize in Acts chapter 11, no one knew that Acts chapter 13 was coming. They were just being faithful. Ordinary means of grace. They continued to gather together. They continued to observe the ordinances. They continued to teach the word. Faithfulness in the ordinary led to something that they could have never seen coming. And so for those of you who have a heart for missionary service, who have a heart for pastoral leadership, who have a heart to be a part of church planting, I just want to learn by the example of these in Acts chapter 13. Be faithful where you're at. Just be faithful. You are free from this pressure of having to do something extraordinary with your life. Every life spent in service For the glory of God among all peoples is a life that is full of significance. Give your life there, church. How you minister in the everyday normal says a lot to the church about how you will minister in future opportunities. But we also believe that the church is the sending agency for missionaries and for churches and for members out to other works No mission board, no church planning group, not even the elders alone are the sending agency. It's the voice of the majority. It's the the will of all of the church that is the sending voice. And that's seen here in Acts 13. The church gathers around, they lay hands upon, and they pray. We will have the privilege of doing that later this morning. The church then has been entrusted with the responsibility to see Men raised up and identified qualified men who would lead the church to then be sent out to serve. A question I think about often is just, where are the next generation of missionaries and church planters and pastors? And I think they're among us. They're among us. faithfulness in the ordinary. And when God calls out our best, let's rejoice and not resist that. We are poised, I believe, here at Covenant Life with opportunities for national church planting and international mission opportunities. We're trying to give ourselves to seeing Residencies where those that are interested can go through and be given, equip, can be equipped and can be given laser like focus on efforts to see God's glory taken to the nations. And so we want to be faithful with that. We want to be faithful in our pastoral internship program, which by God's grace has had at least two men in it for the last seven and a half years. And the hope for church planting and missionary service and future pastoral opportunities and leadership, the hope doesn't reside with us in our internships. No, the hope is the Spirit doing His work, raising men up and men and women up who would then go to the nations, be a part of church planting. We then are just seeking to intentionally steward those who the Lord has seen fit to bring here for these good works. And yet the reality is that most of our membership won't go through these internships. And most of our members will not be a part of these residencies. But that does not mean that the role that our members play is somehow not as important. Now, Covenant Life Church, there has been a culture of godliness among our members. That has helped spread a DNA that we pray would then be exported to other places and among other people groups. A culture of finding joy in people belonging and experiencing community with one another. A culture of care that when others arrive, they're, they're, they're met with gospel hope and gospel application a willingness to invite others into your life to do them spiritual good. And so a church that has intentional programs but doesn't have that type of culture, that's not the goal. The goal is that there would be this culture among this body sprinkled in with some programs, some intentional efforts of stewarding those whom God has brought our way. Every Every member is either a sender or a goer with a vital role to play. And so perhaps then the best way to just unpack the role of the church in ordinary faithful obedience is to just take a look at how Acts 13 came about. And so that brings us to our second point. Second point, the approach of faithfulness. The approach of faithfulness. This is where I'm going to just take a rock and skim it across the book of Acts. If you were to flip over to the end of Acts chapter 7, the gospel has almost exclusively remained in Jerusalem. The gospel is primarily being preached to Jewish people in Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 7, we see Stephen is martyred. He's put to death for his faith in Christ. Listen to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, meaning the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. A persecution hit. There's a scattering among the Christians. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. Verse 3. Or verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, verse 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching the gospel. The church has been anchored in Jerusalem. It's now scattering because of persecution. Except for the apostles, they stay. The gospel is beginning to spread. This, this missionary impulse that we heard Jesus talk about in Matthew 28 in Acts chapter 1, we're now beginning to see lived out throughout the book of Acts. The rest of chapter 8 is the account of the Holy Spirit moving into in Philip. He preaches the word in Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, some apostles come down and just affirm that the Holy Spirit is actually converting Samaritans, not just the Jews. Acts chapter 8 ends, Philip sharing the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, he comes to trust Christ. There will now be, we assume, most historians would say, a gospel witness that goes back to Ethiopia. Just as ordinary believers are going about speaking the gospel. Acts chapter 9, Saul is converted. He begins preaching Christ all over Judea and Samaria and Galilee. Acts chapter 10, Peter is chosen to reach out to Cornelius. Uh, The Holy Spirit falls and Gentiles begin to, to receive the Spirit. Beginning of chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to say, you will never guess what's happening. It's not just Jews that are coming to faith, but also Gentiles. And listen to what the apostles say in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And had that not been true, you and I wouldn't be here today. And then it's as if Luke, the author, picks back up from where he left off in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 11. Listen to what we read. After the report of Jerusalem, All of this has happened. We then pick back up in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. So then those who were scattered, why were they scattered? The persecution, that's right, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone, but, verse 20, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll never guess what happened, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Who started this church? They had scattered, and they came to Antioch, and they're preaching the gospel. And the question is, who started this church? And the answer is, we have no idea. The Spirit did. But through, through what humans? We're not told. We're simply told, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. The Lord did this extraordinary work in the church that would be this mission-sending agency all throughout the, the Roman Empire. And he did it through unnamed, ordinary disciples, unassuming, undeserving believers. If I could say it, he did it through the likes of you and me that were just committed, sold out to living for his glory by being faithful with what he had called them to do. It's faithfulness to the gospel by some of them that starts the greatest missionary sending church in all of human history. This church at Antioch is established by some who left their comfort zones, went to a people and places that they had not gone to before proclaiming the gospel. The greatest church that we've ever seen, missionary enterprise, spread because of unnamed people who were faithful in the small things like speaking the gospel as they were fleeing because of persecution ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality that's the opposite of gospel accidentally friends you already have normal rhythms of life you hear acts chapter you hear this story of how the gospel went they didn't add anything additional They were just faithful where they were already going. What might your life look like if faithfulness to the gospel was just turned up one or two notches? Are you being faithful in the ordinary? Are you making disciples as you go? Uh, Do you remember the promise in Matthew chapter 18? He has been given all authority. And it's from his authority that he's sending you and me. And don't forget how the Great Commission ends. He's not just sending you out there to the wolves to be shredded. No, he is with you always, even to the end of the age. David Platt calls this ordinary people doing extraordinary work through ordinary things. Barnabas is sent. He sets out, he finds Saul, we know it as Paul. They baptize, they teach these Christians to obey all that God had commanded for over a year. Acts chapter 12 then takes us, it sort of transitions Peter out of the narrative of the book of Acts. Tells us a little bit about his imprisonment. And then Paul becomes more prominent as we arrive to the passage that we began at this morning, Acts chapter 13. And so we have this this example of faithfulness. We have the approach. They were just ordinary Christians faithfully sharing the gospel. And that brings us to our last point this morning, the fruit of faithfulness, the fruit of faithfulness. And I would just encourage you, if you have time this week to read Acts chapters 13 and 14 and just read for yourself what the fruit of faithfulness looks like. I just want to highlight, uh, much more could be said. I just want to highlight a few characteristics, almost even as my prayer for both covenant life in our sending and covenant hope in your going. The fruit of faithfulness. Those who went faithfully proclaimed the word of God. I mean, Acts chapter 13, verse Five. They reached Solomon, they began preach uh, proclaiming the Word of God in the synagogues. You look at Acts 13:7, look at Acts 13, 49, look at Acts 14, chapter uh, verse 3, look at Acts 14, verse 7, look at Acts 14:20 20 and 21. They are committed to proclaiming the word. In covenant hope, you may feel a pressure to do something extraordinary in the days ahead, but God's word calls you to do something faithfully ordinary. Keep preaching the word. Love others by preaching the word. Secondly, they faithfully embittered, uh, endured bitter opposition. They faithfully endured bitter opposition. When you preach truth, the enemy will push back. Acts chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. We see this pushback. The enemy is a, he opposes the work of God. Don't let opposition discourage you in your gospel faithfulness. In fact, if you keep reading, they cross over into Asia Minor, the opposition only escalates. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45, we see opposition in Poseidon Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verse 50. We see opposition in Iconium. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. In Lystra, it was so bad that they sought to to kill him. So if I could just encourage you, remain faithful in your ordinary rhythms of life and know that when you do, persecution will come. Number three, they faithfully reaped the fruit of God's work. I've been praying that Acts chapter 13 verse 48, would just grip your hearts. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. (laughs) And what if Acts 13, 48 was the theme of covenant hope? God has appointed some to eternal life, and it is your privilege to share with everyone. And to watch then who he brings into his fold. John chapter 10, verse 16. Your life can matter in ways that you can't imagine if you will give yourself to a life of faithfulness. And what's beautiful is that the word of God spreads through the whole region, joyfully reaping the work of the the Spirit. Number four, they faithfully moved converts into churches. That's been the aim. That's the aim of why the gospel went, and that's the fruit of what happens when the gospel takes root. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, elders are appointed, and corporate life together happens. It's such a gift to be sent with a plurality of elders. And we're thankful for God's provision for covenant hope. Next, they faithfully brought joy to everyone, including the church that sent them. God receives the glory and we get the joy. To be clear, God gets joy too. God truly delights in that which brings him glory. And so your life can have significance far greater than you can imagine when you will give your life to bringing God glory. He delights in that. What a beautiful and comforting truth. I love even that the, the, the joy isn't just for those who are hearing the gospel. The joy isn't just for those that are that are sharing the gospel. The end of Acts chapter 14, we see the joy is also for those who have sent them with the gospel. They come back and they give a report and they say, this is how the Lord is at work. Joy abounds when churches give themselves to faithfulness. Joy to those who will hear, joy to those who are obedient, and joy to those who have done the sending. And so covenant life and covenant hope, be faithful in the ordinary. And watch God do the extraordinary. Twelve years ago, we covenanted together as a church, and we said from the outset that we wanted to plant pregnant, meaning that all along we had hopes and desires and dreams of being a church that would plant other churches. The measuring stick for us wasn't how many we could get into one building, but just how unstoppable the Spirit of God could be if people would give themselves to faithfulness, To his commission. So we have prayed for more disciple makers who would multiply and for more efforts to get the gospel in every neighborhood in Tampa Bay. Lord willing, with the hope of seeing churches planted, covenant life was never intended to be the cul de sac of God's blessing, it was intended to be the conduit through which he would continue to move through us. And William James said that the great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. Church, this is exactly how you leverage your life for a glory that is bigger than yours. Give your life to something that outlasts it. God's glory will outlast your life. Give your life to his glory and give it in the the prescribed means of faithfulness in the ordinary through the ministry of the local church doing extraordinary things, not because the local church is extraordinary, but because the church is the vehicle through which the spirit is accomplishing his purposes among his people, among all nations for his glory. And if you and I will give ourselves to this faithfulness, we will be swept up into a movement that only God can orchestrate. Jim gave you a sampling of that in his prayer about how two churches, faithful, to just we just want to give ourselves to what the Bible says, how that intersected. I'd like to remind you of the same. Christ commanded these disciples to take the gospel from Jerusalem, and they did. Persecution comes to Jerusalem, pushes them out. Gospel goes to Ethiopian man. In Acts chapter eight, comes to faith. The gospel witness then goes to Ethiopia. Saul's converted in Acts chapter 9. Peter gets this vision to go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Churches are scattered. Uh, uh, Believers are scattered in Acts chapter 11. A church is planted in Antioch. Paul then is sent from that church to go around to share the gospel, being faithful to share the gospel and being faithful to see churches planted. Paul then goes on a second and third missionary journey. The gospel and churches extend further north and west, getting into even Greece. Acts ends, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's wanting to go west towards Spain. And Rome then is now going to be this church planting hub. In eighty fifty two, 52, Thomas takes the gospel to India. And churches are planted in various Indian states. In 380, we see Augustine in modern day Algeria. He's teaching the Bible and he's seeing truth spread. In 432, Patrick then gets... Moves forward in obedience, carrying the gospel to Ireland, and churches are planted in Ireland. In 635, we read about the first missionaries heading into China to spread the gospel and to plant churches. In 718, Boniface carries the gospel into Germany, and he works to establish churches. History goes dark for about 500 years. The Lord is working, stuff's happening, but the church doesn't seem to be moving much. In 1498, Christians are pushing the gospel in gospel outposts further south into Africa, in 1580, an outbreak, uh, outbreak of mission work happens in Japan. The gospel goes forth, and churches are planted. In 1609, John Smith plants a church in modern-day Virginia. In 1727, the Moravians are raising up those that are zealous for the gospel, desirous to see the gospel go forth, and churches planted. And literally, the Moravians send among them uh, among themselves. People to the four corners of the earth. In 1793, William Carey heads to India, translates the Bible into numerous languages with the hopes of taking the, the gospel and the gospel taking root that would lead then to church planting. About the same time, Adniram Judson spends time with William Carey. He moves to Burma with the gospel and with the hope for new churches. And when Judson goes, there's not one Christian among this people. George Whitfield comes over from England to the American colonies preaching the gospel in the 1750s in North Carolina. Sees tens of thousands converted. Churches started. Out of the masses from Whitfield's ministry, Sandy Creek Baptist Church is planted with 16 members in Liberty, North Carolina in 1755. In 1845, a group of churches come together in Augusta, Georgia, and they say, we have a desire to see the gospel go to the nations and churches planted around the world. They began to work towards that end. Fast forward, 1978, in North Carolina, a few families are sitting... uh, Sitting around a, a dining room table with the... A burden to see a church planted in Raleigh. That church becomes what is now known as Providence Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Twelve years later, in 1990, a small group from Providence Baptist Church meeting in Wake Forest, North Carolina, are sent out to see a church planted in Wake Forest. This church would become North Wake Church. In 2009, Two couples are sent out of Northwake Church. One to Tampa, uh, two, to, four couples are sent out of Northwake Church. Two to Tampa, two to DC. <clears throat> In April 18th, 2010, Covenant Life Church was planted with 13 members. Gospel going forth, a new church is formed. In September of 2016, Covenant Life sends out 27 members to plant the Hyde Church. And on September 25th, 2022, Covenant Life gathers to commission and send out 17 members to plant Covenant Hope in St. Pete. What started with a few hundred frightened followers of Christ has stood the test of time. Through, Through faithfulness. Ordinary Christians finding Jesus to be their greatest treasure and willing to share that treasure with others. Oh, that God would awaken in us all joyful energy and faithful obedience for this. That there would be a longing in our souls that when we hear that, we think, yes, This is right. Yes, I am thrilled to be a part of a church that's trying to give ourselves to faithfulness in this way. I want to be able to say in years to come, my life mattered and counted more than I could have imagined because we gave ourselves to seeing other strong, Jesus-treasuring churches come into existence. I pray that God would do that work among us. One of the means of grace by which he's given in order to sustain his people through that goal, for that end, until all of Christ's chosen are gathered with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb is we come to a table that looks ordinary. And yet the elements that sit on it and what they're symbolic of is extraordinary. Extraordinary.